I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 62, uh, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Engel, volume 2, pages 386 to 390, and 399 to 408. It is important to remember, however, that much of childhood and adolescent same-sex activity is in fact sexual abuse by an older boy or a man. Sometimes the initiator of the sex play that may include masturbation, fellatio, or anal penetration is an older brother or close relative or classmate. Sometimes it is a man the youth trusts, such as a neighbor, clergyman, or a scoutmaster, or a teacher. Or the seducer may be a stranger who takes up a pseudo-friendship with the boy. The prevalence of sexual abuse in the childhood of homosexuals pederasts and pedophiles has been well documented. The well-known psychiatrist Dr. Jeffrey Satinover, a former fellow in psychiatry and child psychiatry at Yale University, reviewed the results of a study of self-reported sex abuse during the childhood and adolescence of 1,001 homosexual males who sought treatment at a venereal disease clinic during the period of May 1989 to April 1990. 37% of the participants reported that they had been encouraged or forced to have sexual contact before age 19 with an older or more powerful partner, almost always a male. The median age of the participant at first contact was 10 years. The median age difference between partners was 11 years. 51% of the interviewees said force was involved. 33% reported anal sex was performed on them. Children and adolescents with African-American and Hispanic backgrounds were more likely to be victimized than were white boys. Vanden Ardwick has suggested that the H child and the H adolescent are more vulnerable to sexual seduction than his more gender-competent peers. The former has already been primed to respond positively to homosexual advances by his masculine inferiority complex and by his premature erotic interests and pubertal fantasies that have begun to focus on same-sex objects Benden Ardwig charged. He is generally flattered and charmed that a man appears to be kind and attentive to him. Frequently, alcohol, drugs, and pornographic materials depicting homosexual acts are used to reduce the youth's natural inhibitions to same-sex acts. Even though the initial reaction to the abuse may have been one of fear and loathing, nevertheless, the young victim may later find himself fantasizing about having sexual contact with a boy whom he admires and desires to befriend. Dr. Anthony Wakeling, senior lecturer in psychiatry, Royal Free Hospital Medical College London, has cited the research of McGuire, Carlisle, and Young, 1965, on the causal relationship between sexual deviance as a form of conditioned behavior and a young person's first sexual experience, usually during adolescence. Wakeling reported that the researchers found that the nature of the first sexual experience followed by orgasm is critical for the establishment of sexual orientation. The learning takes place after the initial experience, which is seen as playing a role in providing fantasy for subsequent masturbation. Thus, deviant behavior is maintained by masturbation to the deviant fantasies. 
in such cases the precipitating incident of a deviant nature which preceded the initial orgasm, for example, homosexual anal rape or an act of fellatio, was of a particularly strong stimulus value. This stimulus becomes sexually more exciting through associations with masturbation and heterosexual stimuli are extinguished through lack of reinforcement. Such a process might be more likely to occur if the individual has experienced early adverse heterosexual experiences or feelings of inadequacy. Favorable adolescent sexual experience with his peer group is important for an adolescent's satisfactory heterosexual adjustment. It is not surprising that a significant number of pederasts and pedophiles report that they were sexually abused as children or adolescents. Such men remain fixated at an immature level of sexual development, and the preferential age range of their victims reflects the age of their own sexual violation. Significantly, a large number of young male prostitutes have reported that their first sexual experiences was with another male. Early same-sex seduction and molestation, therefore, is not an innocuous event in the life of a boy who is experiencing emotional turmoil in connection with his gender identity and feelings of masculine inadequacy. Nor is it necessarily less traumatic for boys with normal psychosexual development. Wolf has reported that sometimes a boy molested by a man may label the experience as homosexual and misperceive himself as a homosexual based on his having been found sexually attractive by the older man. Once self-labeled, the boy leaves himself open to homosexual activity, said Wild, said Wolf. The genetic gambit. There is at present no scientific evidence to support the theory that homosexual drives and desires are biologically determined. No one has found the so-called gay gene. No one has discovered a pattern of Mendelian inheritance in families that have a homosexual son, Vanden Aardberg has asserted. The most that can be said in relation to inherited traits is that there are certain temperaments, excessive shyness, nervous dispositions, and constitutional factors, slight body build, poor eye-hand coordination that may be considered risk factors or predispositions associated with homosexual adaptation. Sometimes Santanover has done an excellent job in evaluating the theory of the gay gene in his essay, the biology of homosexuality, science, or politics. It is important to note that serious research on the biology, innateness, or genetic determinants of homosexuality has only just recently begun. Exactly opposite to what the public is being led to believe, the research that has been done thus far suggests that genetic factors account for at most but a small proportion of the risk Satinover reported. Satinover, a psychoanalyst by profession, joined a number of scientists and geneticists who questioned the media hype that attended the ill-fated LeVay affair that began in August 1991 when San Francisco neuroautonomist and avowed homosexual Simon LeVay 
reported that he had discovered a localized cluster and nucleus of cells in the brains of homosexual men that was twice as large by volume on autopsy as heterosexual men. World headlines proclaimed that LeVay had unlocked the mystery of the gay gene when in fact he had done no such thing. In his review of LeVay's research report, Satinover purposely used quotes around homosexual and heterosexual because the definitions of each were extremely imprecise, nor was there any way of verifying sexual orientation as the subjects were dead. Further, even if there was a difference in hypothalamic structure between the two groups, this did not necessarily prove that homosexuality was inherited since the brain is known to accommodate itself to an individual's life experiences, especially traumatic ones. Human genetics is a vastly more complicated arena of investigation than previously believed. Actual genetic linkages are extraordinarily difficult to identify, and a single disorder may involve not only a multitude of genes, but also a vast combination of interactions between the genes. The possibility that geneticists will ever discover a single gay gene that causes homosexuality is highly improbable, given the likelihood that it simply does not exist, concluded Santinover. There are, of course, other non-genetic environmental factors, including hormones, drugs, and chemicals that can affect, affect the development of the child in the womb. Studies attempting to link the effect of hormones on the developing male fetus as a possible causal factor in homosexuality are not new. For example, in the late 1970s, Barnhouse noted that from time to time, there is research which is said to, to demonstrate that testosterone levels are different in homosexuals than in heterosexuals. Even if this could be proven, there would be no proof that the different level is connected with behavior. Actually, it may be better stated that homosexual activity itself produces the homosexual changes which have occasionally been reported. Throughout her published works, on homosexuality, Barnhouse emphasized the fact that homosexuality is a treatable condition and homosexuals can and do recover. Gay gene theory as a political tool. However scientifically implausible the theory of a gay gene, the homosexual collective has invested considerable energy and money in promoting the belief that homosexuality is an inborn genetic condition. The gene factor, like all elements of the collective, has been filtered through the political prism and found useful. If a homosexual is born that way, then he is simply acting on desires that are natural for him. Indeed, for indeed so-called obligatory homosexuality demands that he reacts positively toward his inborn drive for same-sex relations. The homosexual collective is well aware of the political and juridical usefulness of the born-that-way argument. It knows that it can expect a much more sympathetic hearing from the public if people believe that homosexuality is biologically determined. The collective realizes that the gay gene ploy is essentially 
is essential in consolidating and retaining its power over its membership. The defectors are never good for business. However, not all leaders of the collective are in favor of this strategy. For example, Peter Tatchell, the maverick leader of the London-based ACT UP group Outrage, has voiced his opposition to the biological determinist explanation of queerness that he says has recently been given a new boost by pseudoscientific research that posits the existence of gay genes and gay brains. In an unpublished 1996 essay titled Making Gay Redundant, he notes that the corollary of the born gay idea is the suggestion that no one can be made gay. He says that this is a tactic that is used by the homosexual collective to refute the charge that homosexuals recruit heterosexuals and its campaign to lower the age of consent. Tatchell has taken a different approach to gay liberation, removing the social opprobrium and penalties from queer relationships and affirming gay love and lust would allow more people to come to terms with presently inhibited homoerotic desires, he says. In this sense, it is perfectly feasible to promote lesbian and gay sexuality and make someone queer. Individuals who have a homosexual component in their character but are inhibited by repression or guilt definitely can be encouraged to acknowledge their same-sex attraction and act upon it, Tetchell claims. Joining the gay Borg. Homosexuality is not predestined. The man who experiences same-sex erotic attractions, even when those attractions result from childhood and adolescent neurosis, still has a moral choice and still is ultimately responsible for his actions. He can fight his inordinate sinful desires, or he can surrender to them, accept his identity as a gay man, and join the ranks of the homosexual collective. The homosexual collective fills a great many needs of the homosexual initiate. Perhaps Wolf had best captured the essence of the function of the collective in the life of a homosexual when he said, in the gay subculture, the gay man can be can do collectively what he did alone as a child. It helps him make the transition from the good little boy, from good little boy to sexual outlaw. In the gay sub, in the gay metropolis, members of the collective can live out their fantasy life. The collective affirms the homosexual in his perversion, anesthetics his anesthetizes his conscience and assuages his guilt. It provides him with a sense of belonging and becomes his new family. The root cause of a homosexual's alienation from his family to tacitly is tacitly explained by Mexican writer Jose Yocan Blanco, an avowed homosexual who believes that a man's homosexuality distances him from society's dominant social political mode. That is, it is opposed to the moral quantification and banalization of marriage and procreation. It costs us years, the best years of our adolescence and youth, to free ourselves from social domestication, to cleanse our bodies of the excrement of the official morality. Our homes expelled us. 
but that permitted us at times also to scorn possessions and family ties as well. Finding new families among strangers united in a combination, united in a common purpose and discovering new, discovering more fundamental reasons for living than the money fetish. Since World War II, there has been a steady migration of homosexuals seeking new families among strangers in large urban port cities in America, such as San Francisco, New York, and Miami. The collective assists and encourages the young homosexual in his transformation or self-reinvention into a gay man. As the popular saying goes, homosexuals are born, not gays are made. According to Wolf, the collective also provides a whole new set of ideas and concepts about sex, gender-human relationships, anatomical relationships, and personal destiny. The collective encourages the homosexual novice to seek rite of passage for homosexuals. Coming out within the confines of the collective, the young homosexual receives internal fulfillment, love, through external means. But if it is true that the individual homosexual has a very large investment in the homosexual collective, the converse is also true. The collective has an investment in each of its individual members. As Tatchell has noted, the homosexual community has a huge investment in gay activity, which now extends way beyond a sense of self-worth to embrace a complete alternative, alternative lifestyle. The next chapter discusses the sexual component of this so-called alternative lifestyle in depth. Homosexual propagandists wisely stay away from the subject, preferring to dwell in, on homosexual rights instead of homosexual acts. Unfortunately, human beings who call themselves civilized can no longer afford that luxury. We shall return to the homosexual collective in Chapter 9. Chapter 7, Male Homosexual Behaviors. Homosexuality as an erotic occupation. Although the word subculture is commonly used in connection with the homosexual collective, the term anti-culture would be a more direct and honest description for the ethos, symbols, lexicon, social institutions, literature, politics, and ideology of the gay world all revolve around institutionalized sexual perversion. Homosexual acts are an expression of deviant behavior. That is, they are characterized by markers common to all sexual perversions, compulsion, fixity, aggression, narcissism, risk-taking, unresolved conflict, fantasy, and the denial and remaking of reality, and strong feelings of guilt and hate. This chapter deals specifically with homosexual behaviors. Its purpose is to illuminate, not offend, although much of the material is by nature patently offensive to normal moral sensibilities. Queenstream versus muscle chic. The style in which the homosexual acts out his sexual desires and his choice of partners is a reflection of his largely unconscious, unconscious defensive and reparative needs. Generally speaking, at any given time, he will mimic his behavior on either a, an effeminate or masculine model, although there is considerable fluidity and blending of choice that comes with age and experience. Likewise, his selection of partners will be based on his subjective needs, both sexual and non-sexual. His objective 
is to secure from another male that which he believes or feels that he does not possess himself. The femme, the feminine, you know, the femme or queen stream homosexual model characterized by the wearing of makeup, a mincing gait, and the limp, the limp wrist, hand-to-hip posturing, falsetto voice, and other camp behaviors, and popularized in the movies of the early 1930s and 1940s as the model most familiar to Americans. The effeminate model, as Dr. Irving Bieber has described it, is neither masculine nor feminine, but it is sui generis. That is, it expresses some caricaturing of female mannerisms, but is set within a behavioral framework of motoric constriction and inhibition. Effeminate males are not graceful like women. Rather, their gestures and voice patterns suggest a lack of freedom of movement, which gives an appearance of constriction and inhibition, noted the researcher. According to writer Arno Carlin, this overt effeminate posing is used to mask any signs of male aggressiveness. Effeminacy seems to be a misleadingly named body language that combines reversal of masculine signals non-assertive signs, and some elements of burlesque femininity to announce, I won't fight, I'm not dangerous, if necessary, I'm not even a man, stated Carlin. In other words, effeminacy is unconsciously used to mask mask masculinity rather than emulate femininity. Dr. Edmund Bergler has also recognized that this fake feminine identification and imitation is an art perfected for the purpose of hiding a more deeply repressed impulse and seems paradigmatic for all of the homosexual's other activities. It is a trick like the lawyer admitting to a lesser crime, he said. The inner conscience accuses the homosexual of the felony of psychic masochism. The inner lawyer instructs his client to admit to a misdemeanor. Oedipal femininity, burglar explained. Overt effeminate behavior is commonly found in seriously gender-disturbed adolescent homosexuals. The Bieber study included a psychiatric evaluation of 30 male adolescent homosexuals, 23 of whom were hospitalized in the adolescent ward at Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital in New York. The grouping of effeminate young homosexuals had renounced normal heterosexual activity and had taken on the feminine role in homosexual relationships. These youth used their effeminate wiles to attract their homosexuals, to attract other homosexuals for whom they played the coquette or mistress. They used feminine names associated with their passive sexual roles and were referred to by other homosexuals as her. Not all homosexual youth in the Bieber study, however, choose to abandon their heterosexual strivings and assume the feminine model. The second grouping chose to act out a hypermasculine form of homosexual behavior in which they played the dominant and aggressive role in homosexual encounters. By adopting the masculine model, these young homosexuals held on to their masculine identity without having to think of themselves as queers. Some had turned to homosexual prostitution where they posed as straight in order to gain in order to attract wealthier male clients. 
According to Bieber, many of these young men were associated with a with destructive and expropriative behavior, including robbery and assault. Although the effeminate image of the male homosexual has been that of the glorified queen, in fact, most adult homosexuals in their public as opposed to their private sexual behavior are not overtly effeminate. As Burglar has noted, you can only tell a homosexual by looks if he wants to reveal himself as such. Most homosexuals are not effusive, preening, smirking exhibitionists. Rather, he said, homosexuality is to be suspected in people whose methods of achieving their aims combined daring with unscrupulousness and a certain amount of cruelty, pseudo-aggression. The hidden masochistic aim plus the psychopathic technique is indicative, said Burglar, power misused, malice exaggerated, cynicism pronounced, subtle systems of emotional blackmail perfected. These elements combine to make the working method of some homosexuals, Burglar argued. Since the early 1970s, there has been a visible shift of style preference in homosexual circles from effeminate to masculine chic. Femme is out and macho is in. Today's gays want a real man, not a girlish boy. In his 1981 essay, Male Dominance in the Gay World, Greg Blackford highlighted the so-called masculinization of contemporary gay life. He reported that the swish and sweaters image has given way to the masculine image of the straight world. The new message is one of toughness, virility, aggression, strength, and potency, said Blackford. Rued captured this new image of the modern homosexual when he wrote that the trademark of leather or S&M bars is a young, muscle-bound, shirtless youth wearing tight black jeans, tight black pants, and sporting a wide whip pose to strike. His general is exposed and superimposed on an eagle, one of whose wings is about to enfold him. Promoters of Antisonem have reported an increased interest among homosexuals in the very masculine leather scene. Author John R. Berger an observer of the erato politics of homosexual porn said that accepting one's S&M proclivities has often been termed a second coming out. In S&M activities, pleasure is derived from the delivery or reception of pain. Dignity USA, which promotes itself as the largest and most progressive national lay movement of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Catholics, has formed leather Levi clubs known as the Defenders of Dignity. The collective aim of the defenders is to work with indignity for the acceptance of the leather Levi community as full and equal members of the one Christ and to work for the wholeness and sanctity of our love and leather sexuality within the church. Not unexpectedly, there is a bit of rivalry and infighting between the advocates of queenstream and homo-masculine leatherstream. Former Catholic seminarian and prolific writer on homosexual themes, Jack Fitcher, has decried the domination of the gay publishing business by femme gays. According to writer Jesse Grant, Fitcher was almost single-handedly responsible for bringing the archetypal concept of manliness to the gay community, for force-feeding the image down our cock-hungry queer throats. Fitcher has charged 
the the self that the self hating men have never understood the leather stream of masculine identified men or gay artists who are in the straight mainstream that they have a hatred for real men, real homosexual men. He said that Main Street female-identified homosexuals like advocate gays confuse the whips and chains of ritual psychodrama with real violence. Urban queers exhibit a heterophobia equal to redneck fundamentalist homophobia, Fritcher said. Homosexual relationships. One night stands with strangers are entered into solely for purposes of immediate sexual gratification and are deliberately devoid of any emotional attachment. As Burglar has observed, cynical detachment wards off and any genuine feelings that come to the fore for the homosexual who is imbued with masochistic injustices, real and fancied. Burglar's opinion that there is more emotional content and even the most calculated heterosexual client-prostitute affair than in the typical homosexual encounter with a stranger is verified by description of such transient acts by the participants themselves. During the now mythical 1970s, I used to go to the Howard Street Baths in San Francisco on Tuesday, which was three-buck fuck night. I'd strip and walk up and down the row of rooms, looking into open doorways for other naked men lying on their bellies. When they were good-looking and signaled that they wanted me to come in, I'd climb on their backs and wallow in their bodies, in the bodies. I'd fuck half a dozen men before going home, and on weekend night, the number would be two or three times that. The 51-year-old homosexual who wrote about his trips to the baths in his early 1920s to discharge his pure animal desire for the bodies of men calculated that he had about 10,000 such sexual contacts over a period of 30 years. Like many homosexuals, he also had some romantic affairs in which he attempted to form some meaningful bonding with his partner. I found my soulmate six times, had more boyfriends than I can count, and I've lived with two lovers, he said before he found his ultimate consolation in Eastern mysticism and yoga. As described by Van den Ardweg, these latter-type homosexual unions usually blossom in an atmosphere of romantic euphoria that quickly deteriorates into frustration and disillusionment, constant jealous rows and reproaches, and the inevitable final drama. British researchers Donald West and Buzz de Villiers also report the expectations that a relationship will break up when sex interest dwindles and fresh faces appear is not unusual in gay circles where heterosexual mores based on family family tradition and parental responsibility do not apply. Dr. Lawrence Hatterer, a specialist in the treatment of homosexuality, has noted that sexual, sexual addicts, including homosexuals, will try to find their complement within the addictive subculture with whom they attempt to form a close symbiotic relationship. But no matter how intense addictive relationships seem during a high, they are by their own nature transient. An addict is really not interested 
in the other part in the other person, only in the pleasure that the other person can provide, Hatter explained. More permanent relationships relations between homosexual partners are largely a matter factor of aging and may or may not include an erotic component. That is, sexual activity may not, may have ceased altogether, or one or both partners may seek sexual outlets outside the paired relationship. Aging comes early to homosexuals. As the popular saying goes, no one loves you when you are old and gay. The homosexual world revolves around youth. The ordinary homosexual is considered middle-aged at 30, elderly at 40, and by 50 an old auntie who has to buy companionship. Practically all homosexuals placing personal ads in the gay press want younger men. No one in the wheelchair set wanted. Aging homosexuals must either pleasure their partners to stay in the game or pay for sex. If formerly the active partner, they may be forced to switch to playing the passive role and permit themselves to be penetrated. Or they just may withdraw from the sexual arena altogether and forswear sex. The life expectancy of a homosexual in the United States and Canada is statistically significantly shorter than that of a heterosexual male. Unless he is particularly talented or famous or wealthy, or he can find a partner with whom he can build a common life based primarily on friendship and common interests rather than sex, his life in old age will be a lonely one. Older peer relationship, older peer partnerships are more stable than arrangements involving a much younger partner. Another alternative for the aging homosexual is to return to his family from whom he has been long alienated and reestablish his familial roots. The latter scenario is not uncommon for homosexuals, old and young, especially when they find themselves in the final stage of age, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Other elderly homosexuals have found comfort and solace in the acquisition of a pet. Traditionally, pets have served as substitute children in the lives of many homosexual men and women, and a large portion of their disposable income is devoted to their care and upkeep. Loving, non-judgmental pets offer the aging homosexual, especially the unconditional love, affection, and loyalty he has found lacking in the outside world, including his own homosexual community. In Will You Still Need Me When I'm 64, the late Ralph Schaffer, a well-known Los Angeles homosexual rights act activist, assailed gay liberation for its failure to come to grips with what he calls youthism. That is, the unconscious belief that older people are inferior in appearance, attractiveness, intelligence, and sexual prowess. Young people constantly use us. They use a crash pad, money, food, jobs, contracts, and in return, they condescend to let us do them. All the aims and goals of gay liberation are for young gays. Nothing in is for older gays. Who is an older person? Well, I remember two sweet young guys complaining to me at a gay liberation dance that this dirty old man was bothering them. The dirty old man was 24 years old. I have nothing against the older man who digs younger guys or vice versa. But when an older man is so fucked up in his head that he can't respond to a man his own age because he's got his eye 
on every 16-year-old he's sick. I have quit gay liberation. In gay liberation, I have known more gay people than in all my life. I've never seen, I've never been so lonely. What a tragic comment on gay liberation. Many older homosexuals share Schaffer's criticism of youthism as well as the militant and in-your-face activism of the contemporary gay movement. John Allen Lee, Ph.D., editor of Gay Midlife and Maturity, said, they, said he was amazed that so many older homosexuals favored the closet of life and that they simply can't stand or understand the hardness of the young gay lifestyle, epitomized in music, metal, and black leather, Lee said. Liberation of older gays must come to grips with the historical fact that youth oriented gay liberation destroyed much that the older gays held dear in the life. Lee noted, while out of the closets and into the streets is what many older gays are prepared to do with their garbage, not with their lifelong identities, he concluded. Polymorphous perversity. According to Negro, once a youth begins to engage in homosexual acts, he will combine his gender inferiority complex with a pleasure addiction to produce sexual acts marked by repetition, rep compulsion, and graduated perversity. Having embraced one's Having embraced one perversion, he will find it easier to embrace other perversions, including sadomasochistic practices, exhibitionism, boyerism, transvestism, and urologistic and scatological fixations and fetishes. The homosexual collective reinforces these perverted behaviors to ensure the individual's continued loyalty and support. These acts reflect a highly infantile sexuality and are essentially masturbatory in nature, reminiscent of adolescent sex play. Vanilla or ordinary homosex practices, including anal sex, oral sex, intercrucial and interfemoral masturbation and bagpiping, ejaculation in the partner's armpits on the darker side are sadomasochism, bondage, or leather, fetishes involving the use of special instruments or clothing, and finally, intergenerational sex pederasty. Anal sex is not limited to sodomy, but can also include rimming, licking the sphincter muscle, shrimping, ingesting ejaculate after sodomy, fisting or handballing, inserting a lubricated fist and forearm into the anus, or using toys such as dildos or anal beads in the anus. Rectal bleeding is a common occurrence from repeated acts of sodomy and fisting produces additional injuries, including rupture and perforation of the rectum and permanent anal incontinence. Vernon H. Gibberth, a retired lieutenant commander on the New York City Police Department, has reported that in May 1981, the FFA, Fist Fuckers of America, made its convention debut in San Francisco where it showed a training film for members on fisting techniques. Sometimes small live animals like gerbils are inserted into the anal canal and the rodent is left to extricate itself from the orifice. Thus far, there have been no open complaints from animal rights activists. Some homosexuals, like the well-known sexologist Alfred Kinsey, are addicted to pleasure derived from urethral penetration, the insertion of foreign objects in their penis. As a rule, homosexual literature for popular consumption
tends to play down the role of sodomy, as there's still a stigma attached to anal sex in the popular mind. However, rent boys, young male prostitutes, report that many of their clients, when protected by anonymity and uh, are in the driver's seat, ask for this service. Overall, homosexuals that involve sucking of the male member are more common. Burglar has suggested that such behavior attempts to emulate the hungry baby at his mother's breast. Master-slave scenarios in which the state is purchased at auction may include being urinated golden showers or defecated on by others, or the urine or human feces may be ingested. Homosexual jewelry, including genital rings and male nipple clips, that cause pain as well as chains, leather straps, dog collars, and other means of pain infliction and degradation and humiliation are commonly associated with the S&M, B&D, bondage discipline, and the leather scene. Although most homosexuals have specific sexual preferences, these are generally negotiable depending on the circumstances, the nature of their relationship to their partner, and our physical limitations, including impotency due to aging or alcohol or drug use. Color-coded handkerchiefs, for example, red for fisting, black for heavy S&M, and purple for general torture, are worn on either the right or left side to indicate preferred sex act and positioning top-bottom active-passive to potential partners. For some homosexuals, these sex acts may be secondary to their primary neurotic compulsion, autoeroticism. Solitary masturbation plays an important role in the fantasy sex life of all homosexuals, regardless of the number of sex affairs or transient sexual contacts they engage in. As reported by Vanden Eidwig, Masturbation reinforces the homosexual's erotic, erotic daydreams and serves to fixate his lustful fantasies and ego-centeredness. Citing a 1984 study by McWhorter and, and Madison on male couple relationships, Vanden Ardwig has noted that 60% of the homosexuals in the study reported that they masturbated two or three times a week, regardless of their other sexual activities. He also observed from his own private psychiatric practice that the homosexual often uses masturbation as a form of self-comfort and after disappointment and frustration. During the 1980s, homosexual magazines carried ads for the AccuJack, a mechanical electric, mechanical electric masturbator designed to speed up self-induced orgasms. The, in terms of high-risk behavior, vanilla sex is the most conducive is the most conducive to the transmission of HIV, hepatitis B, and other sexually transmitted diseases. Barebacking is the practice of having unprotected anal sex with a partner who may be HIV positive. Intergenerational sex includes sex between younger and older adult men, as well as adult sex with children or minors. The latter is a criminal act for, for, for homosexuals who engage in public sex acts, which are illegal in most communities. The risk of being arrested can provide the dominant erotic rush secondary to the sex act itself. The homosexual is a disease reservoir. 
Not surprisingly, homosexuals who practice any or all of the above sexual acts are clinically speaking walking typhoid marries and are a serious public health hazard to themselves and others. The human body was simply not made to be used the way homosexuals use it. Mother Nature is not indifferent to what orifice is used for sex by humans, as some homosexual apologists, such as Father Richard Gender, a former Pittsburgh diocesan priest and convicted sodomite, have suggested. As Dr. Herbert Ratner, editor of Child and Family, has documented, semen is an immunosuppressant, and when deposited in its natural receptacle, the female vagina, its effects are beneficial to the woman. The anorectal orifice, which is an outlet, not an inlet, said Ratner, is composed of delicate columnar mucous membranes which tear easily and which accelerate the rate of absorption and is capable of initiating a marked immunodepressed state when infected semen is present. AIDS itself, a sexually transmitted disease, is primarily not uniquely a condition generated by anal intercourse in which the in which the infected God, in which the infected insertive partner transmits the infection to the receptive partner through seminal ejaculation Ratner reported the unique danger of anal sex is fourfold, explained Ratner. The trauma associated with the act, there whereby HIV directly gets into the bloodstream, the special affinity HIV has for colorectal cells, the colorectal walls, rapid absorption of components of seminal plasma and the seminal plasma's enhancement of viral activity. On July 9, 2002, the U.S. Center for Disease Control, CDC in Atlanta, released a report. New CDC studies shed light on factors underlying high HIV infection rates among gay and bisexual men at the the 14th International AIDS Conference in Barcelona, Spain. The report on sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, including AIDS, was based on CDC-conducted research in five major American cities. It stated that the rate of new HIV infections among men who have sex with men, MSM, were to be nine times higher than among women and heterosexual men. Factors that contributed to this high rate of infection among MSM included psychosocial problems such as depression, a history of childhood sexual abuse, illicit multiple drug use, age of sexual partners, partner violence, and low rates of HIV testing among young MSM, particularly African-Americans and Latinos. One of the major findings of the CDC study was that gay and bisexual men are more likely to engage in high-risk sexual behavior, that is, unprotected anal intercourse with partners of unknown or different HIV status, if their partners are younger, that is, older homosexuals who were Oldest homosexuals were more willing to gamble with the lives of rent boys and young male hustlers than with their peers or regular partners. 
sodomy remains one of the most efficient means of transmitting HIV-AIDS and other STDs, so much so that certain diseases that were previously transmitted only through fecally contaminated food and water are now being transferred by men who practice anal penetration with each other. Among the oral penal anal rectal disorders, venereal diseases, and infestations commonly associated with homosex are proctitis, anal warts, anal cancer, fissures, fistulas, hemorrhoids, general gonococcal urethritis of throat and rectum, general herpes, intestinal parasite, scabies, public lice, gonorrhea of the penis, rectum, throat, and pharynx, syphilis, chlamydia, hepatitis, A and B linked to liver cancer, and HIV-AIDS. Sometimes the anus requires suturing, reconstruction, and or surgery to remove foreign objects, both animate and inanimate. The increase in venereal diseases in major urban hubs, such as San Francisco, the gay capital of the United States, has continued to climb at an alarming rate. As far back as 1982, Reuter reported that San Francisco had a venereal disease rate almost 22 times higher, almost 22 times the national average, due primarily to the city's large homosexual population. The migration rate of homosexuals estimated to be at 5,000 a year to San Francisco has given the Golden Gate City a ratio of two avowed homosexual men for every five adult males. In a 1981 prophetic interview in the homosexual publication The Washington Blade, reporter Lou Chibro interviewed Dr. Daniel C. Williams, a New York City physician, who said that the increasing incidence of sexually transmitted diseases among gay men may be reaching a threshold level in some cities that could be causing a sudden outbreak of seriously damaged immune systems. I hope I'm wrong. If I'm right, we're seeing only the beginning, said Williams. Unfortunately, he was not wrong. Dr. Williams was referring to the development of Eight reported cases of Kaposi's sarcoma, a rare cancer in its more virulent form, discovered among young homosexual men in New York, and the outbreak of a rare lung infection. Pneumocytosis carini pneumonia among homosexuals in New York City and Southern California in 1981. The British medical journal Lancet originally referred to the multitude multi-immune syndrome as the gay compromise syndrome, while some U.S. newspapers called it the gay cancer, or by the acronym GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. By August of 1982, the CDC had settled upon the term now politically correct name, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS. The syndrome had spread to intravenous, intravenous drug users and hemophiliacs. In 1981, there were 159 deaths attributed to AIDS in the United States. By 1998, that number had climbed to 401,028. 
This escalation in AIDS cases is not surprising since the thrust of AIDS education has always been directed at providing the instruction in safer sex that requires no significant change in lifestyle. In 1997, the International Journal of Epidemiology published the results of a Canadian study modeling the impact of HIV disease on mortality in gay and bisexual men by a team of researchers from the British Columbia Center for Excellence in HIV-AIDS, St. Paul's Hospital, Vancouver, Canada. The conclusion of the study was sobering. In a major Canadian center, life expectancy at age 20 years for gay and bisexual men is 8 to 20 years less than for all men. If the same pattern of mortality were to continue, we estimate that nearly half of gay and bisexual men currently aged 20 years will not reach their 65th birthday. Under even the most liberal assumptions, gay and bisexual men in this urban center are now experiencing a life expectancy similar to that experienced by all men in Canada in the year 1871. Rather incredibly, although buggery is one of the primary means of transmitting AIDS, in 2003, the website San Francisco City Clinic operated by the Department of Public Health, City and County of San Francisco, carried the following response by Dr. K to a 21-year-old homosexual's question about first-time anal sex. Anal sex can be very enjoyable. The key is to start slow and use plenty of lubrication. Men and women can have receptive anal sex for years and not have problems with excess relaxation of the anal sphincter. The first, for first-timers, we recommend using a lubricated finger at first and then slowly inserting additional fingers. An erect penis can be fairly large, but once it slips past the anal sphincter, it's home free. Of course, condoms make it easier, safer, and more fun. So please use a condom with any new partner and any partner whose STD and HIV status has not been recently has not recently been checked and enjoy. Sex researchers Masters and Johnson have also had a laudatory word to say about the advantages of male pairing over that of a normal heterosexual couple. They claim that men instinctively know what pleases men. Women do not. Women do not know how it feels to ejaculate. Further, with the my turn, your turn approach, the homosexual does not have to be concerned about partner satisfaction or integration theories of sex, they say. Homosexual pairs may be... may Homosexual pairs have better communication about sex, states Masters and Johnson, and they tell their partner many times, a pure stranger, what they want. In gay bars, they use various physical decorative attachments to indicate sexual preference, they explain. And that's my end of my reading from the right of sodomy today. I'll conclude here because I'm at 54 minutes and a half. So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May the Lord God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.